0: This is Spotify, a product story, and I'm your host, Gustav Söderström. I head up product engineering data and design for Spotify. In this series, we'll take you on Spotify's journey, from the very first desktop app running on a server in a closet, to the revolutionary new audio formats that we're exploring right now. Along with never-before-heard stories behind our biggest product launches and pivots, we'll share the key product strategy lessons that we learned, and how you can apply them to your own work. You'll hear firsthand about how incredibly unlikely Spotify really was. Already from day one, we said we were either going to be
1: an amazing thing or we would crash and burn. And so the ambition was always to revolutionize the music industry. Where we placed
0: our riskiest bets.
1: Spotify lost a lot of money in a business that was filled with wreckage and filled with piracy and filled with labels.
0: And some of our most valuable learnings. And what happened in the UK,
2: is that we went into negative growth. And as a startup, that's like, then then you're
0: dead. Think of this show as a product strategy playbook, brought to you by Spotify. But today's episode is going to be a little different, so stick with me. At Spotify, we believe that in order to understand the present and what often looks like an overnight success from the outside, You have to study the past. And that's exactly what this episode is about. We like to think of it as the prologue to our story, from one of the most epic battles in the history of music, to the hyper-specific aspects of Swedish culture and politics that made it the perfect petri dish for music innovation. This episode sets the stage for Spotify's launch with the desktop client, and everything that came after it. By now, it's fairly common knowledge that Spotify was founded in Stockholm in 2006. But the story behind the first Spotify product actually started years earlier in a little town called Herndon, Virginia.
3: Spotify felt like a, a chance to redo everything that we had tried to do at Napster and, and, and sort of failed to accomplish, in, in part we, because we were just too inexperienced and the, and the record labels weren't ready for it. They didn't understand the tsunami that had just hit them.
0: Sean Parker is, among many, many things, the co-founder of Napster file sharing software that brought the recording industry to its knees. But back in 1999, Sean was just a 19-year-old kid living with his parents and trying to download some Smashing Pumpkin songs from his friends.
3: So MP3 sharing was happening but it wasn't very mainstream and the non-technical friends couldn't get access to MP3s. Your parents or grandparents couldn't get access to MP3s. What we were able to accomplish with Napster was was just creating a an interface where it, it was extremely easy to publish to our servers what songs you had and it was easy for other users to publish to that same essentially directory or search engine what songs they had and then we never touched the music we didn't store the music on our servers and so we were just acting as the clearinghouse uh, that enabled and facilitated all of this sharing of music and it wasn't um, intended to be a piracy site. It just so happens that most of the music that people care about and listen to is owned by someone else.
0: Now, from Sean's perspective, he and his co-founder, Sean Fanning, were solving a problem, which for the record companies was not a problem at all. In fact, that problem was their product and their profit model. Think about how buying music actually worked at the time. You had to go to a physical store, like a, a Tower Records or Sam Goody or something, And then you had to use these sweaty, over-the-ear headphones if you wanted to preview a track. And if you liked a song, you couldn't just pick and choose that track. You had to buy the full album. And CDs weren't cheap. Exploring music was not only painful, but actually quite expensive. So you weren't really inclined to explore or broaden your taste under this paradigm. Now, people weren't using phrases like user experience yet whether consumers realized it yet or not, the user experience of buying what was actually a digital music file by going to a physical store and buying a plastic disc was terrible, and it was about to get a big overhaul, thanks to the peer-to-peer networking that Napster pioneered. With peer-to-peer networking, there's no one centralized place, no server where all the files live. Instead, two people connect directly to each other's computers to download and share files. So with the MP3 being a fairly small compressed file, it suddenly became technologically possible for anyone with a 56 kilobit modem to download and listen to any song ever recorded.
3: So we took all of the friction out of the process of searching for content, finding a user who had the content and downloading the content. And the net effect of that was to create a massive virtual library of content that lived effectively in a decentralized cloud there was no such thing as cloud computing at the time that term didn't emerge until probably 15 years later but um, this was this was a decentralized peer to peer cloud and it and it, it was it was just sort of like from my perspective we this was something already happening and the thing that really changed the culture was when it became available to everyone
0: feels like you solved two problems right you solved the technical problem of this virtual cloud where people had many copies of the files it was just more efficient in terms of delivering bits than than everyone downloading from a central server. But you also solved the other problem you said, the social problem of everyone didn't know didn't have a group of friends that they could connect to. So you know you could connect to this like global group of friends, right? So you both solved the discovery problem and the technical delivery problem with Napster.
3: And the technical problem turned out to be completely novel. There were no, you know, this is a world, I mean, to get really maybe in the weeds a little bit, this, we didn't have database database sharding. We didn't have the ability to even put more than a couple users on each server. We didn't know how to create a massively scalable uh, database that could even support the large number of users that we had simultaneously. I mean, we, we would be seeing millions and millions of, of concurrent users who all needed to have, you know, be logged in and present, uh, and that now that seems trivial. We have lots of services to do that, but there were, there were, you know, even, even just, even just creating like one massive shared namespace for all of these user accounts. I mean, this thing was growing faster than we could write code to support it. And the tools and technologies that we take for granted now that are all available, you know, none of that, we were just writing everything from scratch. I mean, Napster's front end interface was almost an afterthought. So you had, you just had a bunch of people sitting on Windows machines using this crummy front end interface looking for, uh, you know, searching for music, but it got, the, the important thing, and this is almost, it was an important product lesson because as somebody who is both an engineer and a designer, I go back and look at Napster and I'm like, people really use that? And, and the truth is it got the job done and people loved it. You
0: probably already know that lots and lots and lots of people really, really, really love Napster. In fact, Sean estimates that about 70 million people were using Napster at the height of its popularity but not everyone was a fan.
1: We were all completely in over our heads.
0: That's Lars Ulrich. You may know him as the drummer in Metallica, or you may know him as a plaintiff in the now historic Metallica versus Napster lawsuit.
1: It's easy to sit 20 years later and see the chain of events and how one domino would cause another domino and cause another domino to fall and so on and so forth. And then we ended up basically in this shitstorm. And and ended up you know suing each other and ended up being on Capitol Hill and blah 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 and it was just a, it was such a circus you know.
0: The circus started when Lars got a call about an unreleased Metallica track called "I Disappear" from its longtime manager Cliff, going,
1: "There's a radio station in St. Louis, Missouri." that's playing i disappear it was one of those things i can still hear him say that that was if he had called up and started speaking russian to me i that would have made more sense because there was at, at that time where we were uh we I, we could not connect those dots whatsoever so well let's uh, investigate and find out what's going on uh so a day or two later, I get a call back going. Well, there's a company called Napster who offer this service over the internet where you can go and download songs, and then people can play them. Basically, long story short, we tracked down the fact that 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 this I disappear song that was a work in progress. We hadn't even decided which version of the song we were going to um, share with the world had leaked. Through this Napster, and then now, I think subsequently, twenty or thirty radio stations in America were playing this song. We felt so uh, I guess violated uh, is is the right word because the song wasn't even done. <laughs> and then, all of a sudden, it's being played on all these radio stations. So these people took our song. So we're like, well, let's get our song back.
0: What followed was what both Lars and Sean referred to as a back-alley brawl. A back-alley brawl that was about to get much, much bigger than just one song. In April 2000, Metallica officially filed charges. They accused Napster of, quote, copyright infringements, unlawful use of digital audio interface device, and violations of the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, end quote. And they sought $100,000 per illegally downloaded song in damages. Two weeks later, Lars showed up unannounced at Napster's office, a rundown old bank building in San Mateo, California, with a special delivery for Sean and his co-founder, a complete list of the 335,435 Napster users who had illegally downloaded Metallica's songs, all neatly printed out on 60,000 sheets of paper
3: this cavalcade of black SUVs shows up and Lars Ulrich gets out of them with his sunglasses on and ceremonially marches in with the first box followed by an army of people carrying the other boxes of, of names and and, and, and made, made a point to to do this in person on camera. So
0: they clearly knew how media worked
3: the San Mateo police had, had come because there were crowds of protesters who were angry at Metallica, and then there were crowds of Metallica supporters who were cheering them on, and then there were just like casual kind of looky-loos who were, who were, you know, interested in the spectacle. And, and so I, I was there when, when Lars walked those names into our office and sort of like glanced at me and glanced at Sean, the other Sean, and it was sort of the extent of it. Then we snuck out. So the two of us went outside and just put like hoodies on and walked across the street and just watched this bizarre spectacle.
0: But Lars wasn't the only one adept at working the media. Sean struck back hard. Napster did ban the Metallica fans on Lars's list. But when they opened up the app, every single banned user, all 335,000 of them, saw a pop up window that simply said, Banned by Metallica. This was like a punch in the stomach to Lars. For decades, Metallica had prided itself on being fan friendly. And now overnight, they were being presented as the symbol of corporate greed. The effect was immediate and devastating.
1: We made it about Metallica and Napster. And Napster made it about Metallica and our fans. And that was the smartest move that they could do because they, they took themselves out of the equation but it was this thing that you're either for Napster or you're against Napster. If you're against Napster, you're greedy. And if you're against Napster, you're a Luddite and you don't understand technology. And if you're for Metallica, then it's about money. And, you know, we had always been so fan friendly. We had always been into tape trading and we had been into sharing music through cassettes and we had encouraged people to come and record our shows for free and we were really pro-bootlegging and all this type of stuff and we were sitting there going what Metallica are they talking about? We've spent 20 years being the most fan-friendly band on this planet. Maybe there's two Metallicas I mean it was so surreal because we we couldn't correlate who they were talking about in the press to who how we viewed ourselves at the time so it was very very uh, surreal but in a nutshell the whole Napster thing was well we may not be against giving our music for free but you should ask us that question before you make our music available the back-alley
0: brawl had become nothing less than a national conversation about the future of music.
1: Mr. Albrecht, uh, I, I really look forward to hearing your testimony. By July
0: 2000, Lars even found himself testifying in front of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee.
1: We should decide what happens to our music, not a company with no rights in our recordings, which has never invested a penny in our music or anything to do with its creation. The choice has been taken away from us.
0: And then, in 2001 just two short years after Napster had first launched, a circuit court in California ruled in favor of Metallica and issued an injunction against Napster to delete every single Metallica track from its users' libraries, a task that was, by definition, impossible on a peer-to-peer network. Instead, Napster voluntarily ended service and eventually filed for bankruptcy. But Sean knew instinctively what every good product person strives to understand, what the consumers actually want. And once the consumers had tried it, there was no putting the genie back in the bottle. Sean had one message for the music industry.
3: You can litigate against us. You can shut our service down. But this peer-to-peer technology that we've unleashed is not something you can regulate. Because there's absolutely no reason why we need to have centralized servers. We can have a completely decentralized system. You're not going to be able to sue that. You can't shut that down, and you can't stop users who want to exchange music from doing what they want to do. And in a world where you don't provide consumers with the value proposition that they want, if you're not providing consumers with the product they want through the distribution channels that they want, you know, in a in an efficient fast, timely way, if you're gonna expect consumers who've just had this, you know, kind of mind-altering, mind-expanding experience of being on Napster to go back to buying CDs the old way, you're, you're totally out of touch with reality. You're living in a fantasy world.
0: In the U.S., the courts may have sided with the record labels and piracy had been curbed, at least temporarily. In Sweden, it was a completely different story. By the mid-2000s, Napster was gone, but piracy was everywhere.
4: I mean, Sweden was, it was a piracy haven. It was
0: crazy. That's Ludvig Vanner. Today, he's the managing director of IFP, the Swedish record company's business organization. But at that time, he was the head of an indie music label. One of the biggest Swedish, actually the biggest Swedish evening paper still is.
4: And they had a guide on how you download the music. So it was a guide, you know, step one, two, three, four, five. We also had a meeting with the head editor of that paper afterwards because we wondered how can you even, because it still was illegal. So how can you actually create guides in the biggest evening paper in Sweden? And he said, because, you know, the public wants it. So we have an obligation to fulfill their desires in explaining them how it works.
0: On the other end of the spectrum, Per Sundin ran the Nordic office for one of the largest record labels, Sony.
2: And uh, from 2000 to 2008, uh, the Swedish uh, revenue uh, in the record industry decreased with 50%. 50%. Fifty percent and it, it wasn't because of people stopped listening to music, it was they downloaded illegally, and they thought they had had the right to do it. That was the worst of all.
0: Per told us that he personally had to fire two hundred and fifty people during that same period of time.
2: And what happened when you go into a budget meeting uh, every year and you say, okay, what's going to happen next year? Well, we believe that the, the, the market will decrease. And then you and, uh, and we're going to sell less CDs. And to make that up, you fire people and you increase the price of the CD. So you punished all the ones that that um, that actually paid. And in the newspapers was you know again you know big you know headlines. Oh, music industry is increasing prices again and, and things like that. And for B being head of the Swedish and then also the Nordic enterprises for Sony Music, you felt ashamed. You know, felt ashamed by you know the that we couldn't do anything more. And we also did everything wrong, you know, because we didn't embrace it as we should have from the beginning. The first thing you do when someone's trying to change your business, you try to kill it. And that's what we did with Napster. Because no one wants change, even though we say, oh, embrace change. Yes, I love change, but we don't.
0: Listening was at an all-time high, but the record industry was tanking. And the labels thought that people would never pay for music again. And Sweden, where Spotify was founded, was the worst of all. There are two main reasons Sweden became such a haven for pirates. One reason is technological.
5: So back then, Sweden was in the forefront of technology in many different ways.
0: Paulina Modlippa is a Stockholm-based tech and innovation consultant. Paulina says Spotify and the other companies to come out of the Swedish tech scene in the early 2000s had distinct advantages over companies from other countries.
5: We had great internet access. We also had this sort of government-funded PC program where uh, families could get subsidized PCs and computers and have them at home. So back then, kids were using computers to a large extent and playing games and program. And, and I mean, this was also sort of the source of people becoming, starting to sort of, um, well, turning into hackers um, and, uh, and also the reason why piracy started to grow in Sweden
0: Early on, the government made getting the whole country online, not just rich people or people who live in cities, a priority. They gave tax incentives to families that bought home PCs and laid miles and miles of cable, bringing high-bandwidth, low-latency internet to people all over the country. This investment in infrastructure paid off and made Sweden an early tech hub for internet companies, but also the world's hotspot for piracy. Piracy wasn't rampant just because access to broadband made it so easy. The other reason piracy thrived is more philosophical.
5: And that philosophy is sort of the access to all information or all content and, well, making information and content available to anyone. Almost a matter of democracy, I'd say. You might
0: have heard of the Pirate Party, an entire political party dedicated to liberating content. It got its start in Sweden... And at one point, it even had more members of parliament than the Green Party did. But piracy wasn't just something fringy. Here's per again.
2: Even the election in Sweden 2006 to the parliament was special because then the, the sitting prime minister and the opponent, you know, um, it was Joran Persson and Fredrik Reinfeldt, they had a, a, had a debate in the national TV one week before the election. And then the question came up because it was everywhere of course.
6: Fredrik Reinfeldt, idag är det förbjudet att ladda ner musik från nätet utan att betala. Bör den lagen ändras?
2: So what do we do with, with illegal downloading? And then then both of them said of course we we should allow that for private usage.
4: Jag vet att EU har påverkat oss att genomföra den. Jag tycker att man ska stifta lag
2: som man också. Yes for private usage it should be you should we should be free because we can't criminalize a whole youth generation.
3: Därför att det här är en gammal teknik. Vi måste se till så att ungdomar som gör den här nedladdningen inte upplever sig som kriminella. Sen ska vi klara konstnär.
2: And uh, so it's, it was it was terrible. My, my my mom called me that night and said you have to leave the music industry and do something else, because there's no light in the tunnel.
0: The so-called information revolution resonated with us Swedes on a deep cultural level. People really thought that information, including all forms of content, should be free for everyone, precisely because it was just information. And this mentality meant that piracy left unchecked was going to flourish until something better came along. But nobody knew if or when that would happen. And in the meantime, people like Ludwig, whose livelihoods depended on the record industry, weren't so sure that they could hang on for that long.
4: So um, I remember I spoke to a friend of mine who worked in London at that time, and he said, so what's a, the what's a sort of turnover for the Swedish music industry? And I told him the figure, and he said, "Ludwig, that's not a business, that's a hobby.
0: But piracy wasn't the only problem facing anyone trying to reinvent music listening.
6: There were a few uh, obstacles that we needed to kind of think about how to tackle. But one was that we were trying to introduce a whole new user behavior.
0: Sophia Benz eventually went on to become Spotify's first CMO. And one of her first and biggest jobs was to figure out how to sell regular people, music pirates and, and CD buyers alike, on the radical idea that they didn't actually need to own music anymore in order to enjoy it
6: people at the time were buying CDs or downloads, and they wanted to own the music. They're used to owning the music, and they've seen their parents and grandparents owning music in the same way as you own your own books and arts and everything that you care for deeply. So it was a behavior that was deeply integrated in humans. So there was a lot of talk about access rather than ownership.
0: So even for the pirates... There was this mental shift of, of: Am I supposed to just rent or borrow this music? I liked owning my files, right? Yes. It's mine, and that that was one of the hardest challenges because the most hardcore music lovers they relished in their collections of, of files and CDs and so forth, right? Yes. Do you remember how you positioned that that um, this access versus ownership?
6: I mean, uh, one behavior that we saw was that people saved albums and stored and organized their Spotify digitally in the same way as they stored their physical record collections, which was interesting to see. So I think that was like a lag from how we were normally doing it. And, and also we need to remember that at the time, there were no smartphones and the word streaming wasn't used. So it was hard to explain.
0: Access, that is the ability to play music on demand without owning it was really, really hard for people to wrap their heads around, no matter how they got their music, legally or not. Nowadays, streaming has become so ubiquitous that it's almost harder to explain the world before streaming. But remember, these were the early days. We knew the world was changing, but we didn't know quite how, at least not yet. Okay, product strategists, listen up. At the beginning of the show, we said that this podcast was about product strategy. Now that you've got the backstory, it's time for some theory. At Spotify, we love frameworks and to model the world around us. But what do we mean by that? A model is a simplified version of the truth. And that's a risk because it means it's not really true. But if it's true enough, it can give you predictive power, the ability to see into the future and to much better understand the past. So before we dive into Spotify's product story in the next episode, we want to bring you a framework and a model for how to think about this series. Matthew Ball is a media analyst and a managing partner at Apillion Industries, which operates a venture seed fund. He ran strategy at Amazon Studios for a while, and before that worked at Churning Group, a film and TV company. And Matthew came
7: up with this theory. In general, there are about three different ways for competition in media services and distribution. The first is access. You can think of access as being initiated or kicked off by a real innovation in how content is delivered to the consumer, accessed by the consumer, or priced. Then comes content differentiation. But when we take a look at many of the other access-related innovations, there's almost always coincident and very substantial shifts in content. And finally, platform. And that is to say, rather than just being a single business, just be in the business of delivering a show, a title, a product you start to build out something more expansive.
0: According to Matthew's framework, media companies go through three distinct phases. The first one is about enabling access to content in a way that wasn't previously possible. The second phase, as competition catches up on access, is to compete with unique content. And the third is to compete as a platform and let your users create unique content for you. For decades, the music industry had operated in more or less the same way, CDs replaced cassette tapes that replaced vinyl. But that all changed when MP3s started showing up. Until MP3s, a song was always tied to a physical object, like a CD. Now that music was a file, it was infinitely copyable and could travel at the speed of light.
7: It's almost impossible to overstate just how big of an impact this would have. And every time we have a change in access, We see changes in which companies lead, how they monetize, how the market grows or contracts. If you looked for a simple rule of thumb, the greater the access-based innovation, the greater the change in the access-based reset, the greater the change in monetization and in content, and in general, the greater the growth as well.
0: This is the environment that Spotify was born in, where the only thing bigger than the upheaval was the size of the opportunity. More than a decade before Uber went after cabs and Airbnb upended hotels, the music industry was getting disrupted like no other industry before it. So with the advent of MP3s and piracy, consumers' access to music had changed forever, virtually overnight. The problem was, it didn't have a business model to support it, which is where streaming and Spotify comes into the picture. In our next episode, We'll cover how Daniel Ek and Martin Laurensen set out in Sweden, the land of piracy, to fix music. And in the process found the answer to a question that no one else had figured out. How do you steal from a pirate? If
1: you could have all the world's music on your hard drive uh, and create that feeling, irregardless of what technical solution you used in the end, did I think that would work? And the answer was 100% yes.
0: That's it for today's episode of Spotify, a product story. There's just one more thing before we go. Remember Sean and Lars in that back alley brawl? Well.
3: We've since become really close. He came to my wedding, you know, we vacationed together. <laughs> that's a whole other story there.
0: A story that's just too good for us to keep to ourselves. Stay tuned after the credits for a piece on music history in their own words, like I've never heard it told before. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Spotify, a product story is produced by Munk Studios for Spotify. We're edited by Francis Harlow and mixed by Joachim Löfgren, Victor Bergdahl and Andrea Fantuzzi. Our theme music was composed by Andrea Fantuzzi. Veronica Harth is our in-house Spotify correspondent. I'm Gustav Söderström, thanks for listening. So you stuck around. We promised you a good story. Now here it is. Sean, of course, went on to become president of Facebook back when it was called the Facebook, but he told me he never really got over what happened with Napster.
3: I was secretly obsessed with the idea of having a second act in music and, and, and getting, getting one more shot at this, this elusive goal of, of trying, to, trying to rebuild the music industry.
0: With that in mind, Sean invested in Spotify in early 2010, around the same time that Spotify launched in the US. It was a pivotal moment for the company.
3: We were really going out on a limb, and it was a tough sell. And there were a lot of bands that were unconvinced. And the thought was, well, if if we could get the one band that was most associated with their war on piracy and streaming music, it would be Metallica. I mean, what better messenger for this new music revolution? And then I had my own, uh, like, kind of emotional reasons to want to bury the hatchet.
0: So nearly a decade after Napster shut down, Lars Ulrich
1: got another unexpected call from his manager, Cliff. We got a call from Cliff, uh, again, saying that Sean Parker, who obviously was the face of Napster and and subsequently had done incredible things with Facebook and and other technologies, wanted to, to talk to us. I'll let Sean and Lars tell the rest of the story from here. And obviously when somebody like Sean Parker with the brilliant mind and, and with as innovative uh, as he had been for the previous, I guess at that time, close to what, 12, 15, 14, 15 years, wanted to talk, uh, we were open.
3: So I finally was able to broker uh, a meeting and they said, well, we want you to come up. We want to meet on our turf, come to our, our studio up, up north of San Francisco. Where they've been operating for decades um i was very very nervous they said come alone don't bring an assistant don't bring anyone come by yourself
1: cliff encouraged him to come alone and uh, he showed up at hq in 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 san rafael and uh, came in and was brave walked in through the door and there were The four members of Metallica. And I can only imagine uh, what it would be like, you know, through his
3: view. So I'm walking into this room full of people who I've been in litigation with and I've never met and they've never met me. And and I'm way outnumbered. (laughs) I'm, I'm like, I am. I'm I am. I don't know what I'm walking into. You know, is this some sort of a, am I going to regret? I was, I was sweating profusely, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even that hot. It was just like kind of a normal kind of cool day in San Francisco. And I just remember feeling like clammy and just thinking, I'm oh like, oh what am I, what have I got myself into? Because this has all become very real now.
1: Obviously, I mean, none of us are. Assholes. None of us are nasty people. I mean, hi, how are you? Come on in. Nice to see you. Would you like a beverage? <laughs> Would you like some tea, some coffee, whatever? I mean, we were trying to make him feel uh, comfortable, and obviously, uh, it was pretty clear that he was, uh, 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 I don't know, nervous, uncomfortable,
3: whatever. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna I, and, and I I walk in, and you know, they're all, they take me to this 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 room, um. Kind of just like a nondescript conference room with a bunch of Metallica uh, branded merchandise everywhere. and they're all sitting around the table just kind of waiting and I go around and introduce myself, but it's like not a normal it's not a normal introduction um, because we 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 have no idea where this conversation is gonna go. And the first I don't know hour. Was almost like a group therapy session, and so
1: he came in, and and we tried to uh, make him feel at home and, and be respectful, and and we had some very good, uh, healthy uh, discussions about the past, uh, about his view and 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 how he felt about everything that had happened in 2000, 2001. And then we talked about our experience and our version of those events. And even though we uh, agreed on some things, I, I think we, we very much felt that both of us were sort of uh, unprepared for what happened and, um, uh, kind of, uh, making it up as we went along to the best of our ability, uh, you know, and we, so we were quite open about that. We agreed to disagree on certain elements of it, but I think it it was very respectful.
3: But when he kind of when we got talking about like what we were really feeling, like what did it feel like, you know, to to live to live through that kind of scrutiny, and what what did it feel like for him, you know, and he he made it really clear that like it really hurt him, <laughs> that we that we 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 took down all those Metallica users, and I said, you know, I kind of did that to you. That was my that was like, a, that was definitely a calculated move, you know, to try to punish you guys for for, for, for what you did. And, and and Lars said, you know, this was a street fight, you know, well, it was nothing personal. Like, you know, we're just two rival gangs. And it was kind of a, a brawl. And I said, yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I was just 19 at the time. So like you guys were a lot more mature and really successful. And, and, and I, I mean, I, I felt powerless. And so we, we had this sort of kumbaya, like, group therapy session. And um, I, I kind of feel like I teared up a couple times. And s- somehow out of that process, I had this realization that, you know, so I, we had been so vilified by some, but also embraced by others. And we were at the center of this maelstrom. And Metallica was equally, had put themselves in the center of it. And our experience of being in the middle of this media moment and dealing with the positive and negative ended up having way more in common with each other um, than, than, let's say, if I met a random Napster fan on the street and they said, oh, I used to download a hundred, hundreds of songs on Napster. I loved Napster. It was so great. Um, they didn't live through the street fight. So, there, so there, there's this this, this rea- realization that, that I had a lot more common experiences, shared experiences with Lars than I did with most people.
1: There's a word you learned that's not necessarily part of your vocabulary when you're 19 years old and full of spunk. And that's the word empathy. And so when you start understanding things from another person's point of views, so your adversary in this case, it helps a lot. And... I felt kind of a kindred spirit in Sean. And so to have the dialogue, to be able to get the points of view across, to be able to express how we ended up in that street fight and why we ended up in that street fight and how bewildering it was for us to be in that street fight and then get a chance to sort of 10 years later, uh, just explain our points of view and, and get that out there and get a chance to do it the right way felt so satisfying.
0: Not long after this meeting, Sean and Lars appeared on stage together for the first time at a press event where Metallica officially announced that they were going to add their full catalogue to Spotify. And their fans loved it. In 2019 alone, Spotify used to stream Metallica over a billion times. Metallica had gone from poster child for the war on piracy to messenger of the digital revolution. Not a half-bad ending to that back-alley brawl, right?